You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles tonight to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 11. You'll find this on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at Revelation chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11, and this is again on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I hope you know that the doctrine of perseverance, or perhaps better yet, the doctrine of preservation, is a precious truth. In one of the Psalms, David expounds the events of providence in this way. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. And herein, I believe, lies the sweetness and the spring and the security of our salvation. It's not that you and I are able to persevere, but that God is willing to preserve. He will direct and dispose of our lives, if we're Christians, for his glory and our own good. That's what we believe. And all things he will providentially overrule so that they work together for our good. Believers can neither fully nor finally fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine. 1 Peter 1.5, in the King James, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And this truth of preservation is a truth that permeates this passage. <clears throat> we are realistic about our human experience, but we are optimistic about divine power. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Realistic about our own experience, but optimistic about God's power. When this was written, it had been 60 plus years since Christ ascended, and now the ascended Christ appears to the Apostle John. And it's noteworthy that John describes himself, I believe, with great self-awareness. First, you'll notice he identifies himself as brother, a believer in the gospel and a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Mind you, this man was an apostle of Jesus and the most beloved of the twelve. And yet, he tells us he is one of us and content to be called our brother. And I think that's eminently encouraging. As a believer, John values above all else his membership in the family of God. But then secondly, he calls himself our partner, our partner in the trials and hardships of a fallen world, literally a fellow partaker able to give sympathetic counsel and comfort. He is exiled on a barren, rocky island called Patmos, which was really a hard labor quarry of the ancient world. He was sent there apparently on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I don't think this was a word about God. I think it was a word from God. I don't think this was a testimony about Jesus. I think it was the testimony of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. That testimony. So John is banished for faithfully preaching the word of God and writing about Christ and the gospel. He was not on Patmos to evangelize the natives. He was not there to start and plant a church. He was not there simply to rendezvous with Jesus. His exile was the result of his loyalty and devotion to Christ as Lord of the church. And we're told that at that time, John was in the spirit, which apparently is something extremely special. He doesn't explain it, but we get an idea what it is from other places. For example, on the roof, you'll remember, Peter fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened. Paul was in the temple when he fell into a trance and was warned to flee Jerusalem quickly. So apparently, John is experiencing something very similar as the Spirit heightens all of his faculties. Hendrickson says, John sees, but not with physical eyes. He hears, but not with physical ears. He is in direct spiritual contact with his Savior. That is, he is alone with God. And he tells us it was the Lord's day, which is one way of referring to the first day of the week. It's the only place in the New Testament where that phrase is used. And there's no explanation given. So it seems safe to say that he's using this phrase as if it were something familiar, and we would conclude the Christian Sabbath. So he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the market day of the soul. Just as the Lord's Supper commemorates the death of Jesus, so the Lord's Day commemorates his resurrection. And as John was in this state, he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. And believe me, this must have been unexpected and rather startling. It sounded unlike any other voice he'd ever heard on earth. It was likened to a trumpet blast at Mount Sinai when Moses himself trembled, and this must have been something awesome. And he learned that it was the voice of Christ commissioning him to publish the book of Revelation. The risen Lord told him to write what he saw. So he's not writing his own thoughts or his own philosophies or his own opinions. And this is, of course, in keeping with what the Old Testament prophets were commanded by God to do. Exodus 17, for example. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book 
and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book. Jeremiah 30, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. So they were to write to preserve and propagate the truth, and this was to give certainty and comfort to the church. Before Moses, God revealed truth passed down by word of mouth, but in light of the corruption of the flesh and the hostility of the world and the malice of Satan, a book was needed. It has to be a public written standard to edify the church and testify against evil. And that's what John did. And just think of the responsibility entrusted to this man. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He sends it to the seven churches named in order, the perfect number seven to represent the whole church. And what John records for is for the church in any place or any age of history, which includes you and me. And we can see ourselves in those historical churches that were located in Asia Minor. And I believe it's important for you and I to recognize the threefold description of what we share. He is our partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. These are the three key features of the Christian life. All of them experienced in Jesus. Two are objective and outside of our control, the tribulation and the kingdom. One is subjective and under our control, the patient endurance. All three of these share the same definite article, V, which links them together. They're a unit. And in the Christian life, you and I experience difficulty, dominion, and determination. The first is the difficulty which is experienced by means of the tribulation of which he speaks. The New Testament is filled with examples of this sort of thing with respect to Christian living. For example, the crowds at Lystra, you remember, turned on Paul and Barnabas at the instigation of the Jews. It says the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That was a traumatic experience. And it left a lasting impression on both his body and his soul. Reflecting upon his ministry later, he tells the Corinthians, three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. You know something more narrowly, a man dies from stoning. But Christ preserved the apostle. He apparently had work for him to do. And it illustrates just how God keeps his children under his watchful eye. What is it that we confess? He so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Until that day that is appointed for you and I, we are invincible. At the right time, in the right place, in the right way, he'll call us home. But until that day, we're invincible. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. But divine preservation does not exempt us from enduring difficulties because in almost every city Paul visited, he faced opposition and hardships. 
because we follow a master who carried his own cross and suffered the agonies that we deserve. And it says a servant is not greater than his master. So as a matter of course, the believer's experience is peppered with trials. Paul and Barnabas visited the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice that John doesn't say tribulations plural in Revelation, but he says tribulation singular. It's as if he sums up the whole gospel age in that one overarching term, the tribulation. That makes sense because he alluded to an innumerable crowd earlier in Revelation chapter 7 when he says, or later, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there he saw the whole church assembled before God that was taken out of the tribulation. Every age, every place of the world. So you and I live in difficult times. Pandemics, Ukraine, wars, rumors of wars. It's an evil age, according to Paul, a twisted generation. John tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Tertullian, the ancient church father, claims that before the apostle John was banished, he was boiled in oil. And Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. But you know something, it does seem strange, doesn't it, when saints suffer and the wicked prosper? Think of Asaph in Psalm 73. Some of God's sweetest and noblest and most pious saints are racked with pain. They suffer poverty, they experience grief and sorrow, they endure injustice, and they die of cancer. And we're told many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We find that it would be strange if the saints in this world did not suffer, as a matter of fact, because this world, as you know, is in revolt against its creator. Should we expect anything else in a rebellious creation? John says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The natural man is opposed to God and his word and his people. Therefore, he's hostile. And the world's opposition intensifies when the kingdom draws near. Just look at the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, this is the path that our master traveled, the path of suffering and death. And this is why it's a narrow gate through which we must all strive to enter. A narrow gate. There's not much room. It's difficult and suffering, or the cross that we take up daily, is the means by which God prepares us for heaven. Why are we surprised? How many times have we prayed for more growth, more usefulness? I've prayed for that. I assume you have too. Well, are the most useful Christians the most comfortable Christians? Are they the most prosperous in the world? No, 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 no. The most useful Christians are the most holy 
Christians. The ones who are closest to the cross. God uses his hammer and his chisel to shape as he sees fit for the common good. And there is no other way to get rid of the needless corners and smooth out the edges than the cross. The Bible says that our suffering is more to be compensated when Jesus returns, but until then we suffer as our master did. But we have this promise that the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, the prosperous wicked, but to the things that are unseen, the great cloud of witnesses. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the first thing in which we share is the tribulation. But the second is the dominion, which is experienced when believers receive God's kingdom. You know, when John wrote, the dream of most ancient men was to possess a throne. The ideal of most was to enjoy the exercise of power and dominion like the emperor. Do whatever you want. For thousands of years, people tried to gain this by all sorts of ways. Jesus teaches that all worldly avenues of gaining power are utterly fruitless and vain. He called his disciples and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. John echoes that teaching in describing our experience of the kingdom. This is not something that we can establish ourselves or gain by our own ingenuity or human ability. It's only through Jesus Christ, the divine human mediator, that we obtain it. And notice how in terms of syntax, the kingdom follows the tribulation. Did you catch that? That means that the one is very closely associated with the other. In fact, as Paul and Barnabas reminded us, it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom. But when this life is over, we'll receive a royal welcome in the realm of heaven. Isaiah 55 says, you shall go out in joy and led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And on that great and awesome day we'll receive the promised inheritance, because the king will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But you know something? Scripture also teaches us that even now we reign in the midst of our trials. Isn't this what Jesus implied? He said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To inherit a kingdom means to occupy a position of royalty. Kings. Queens. Revelation 1, verse 6, you remember, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And of course, our current reign looks very different from worldly kingship. The world says 
He is a king that fears nothing and desires nothing. Well, that's true of a Christian, at least spiritually. We fear nothing in the world. We desire nothing in the world. With the psalmist, we say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Just as Christ was unlike anything the world expected, so is his kingdom in which we share. This is part of God's ironic dealing with the world and the forces of evil. Jesus reigned in humility. He defeated the enemy through death. He conquered the grave by lying down in it and rising on the third day. In the same way, we reign with him in humility and apparent defeat and dying daily. Not yet do we exercise a visible reign by sitting on thrones in heaven, but the day will come and it's on the horizon when we'll join with the Lord Jesus in judging reprobate angels and men. But already we reign spiritually by worshiping God and serving in the church. We are a royal priesthood who proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. And our Lord tells you and I that we are great when we use our freedom to love one another. That's when we're great. We reign spiritually as we rise above the world and as we resist the devil and as we rule over our own lusts. Each time you resist temptation, each time you fight against that besetting sin, each time you pray for grace, you're exercising your royal prerogative. And every time we oppose falsehood or deny ourselves or resist the devil, we conquer. So there you have the kingdom. But then third, there is the determination which is expressed when we exercise patient endurance. We've had the tribulation, we've had the kingdom, and now the patient endurance. Of the three we are considering, this is the only one over which you and I have any kind of control. We are amid tribulation as members of the kingdom, and as such we persevere or are preserved. And difficult times require from the heirs of salvation enduring faith, patient endurance. Not just passive surrender. That's not what he's talking about. It's cheerful constancy. It's determined faithfulness. Leon Morris puts it this way. It is an active and manly endurance, not a negative resignation like the Stoic. This patient endurance is one of the distinguishing traits of a Christian. How can you endure, the world says? You're facing death. We do it joyfully. We die well. And we see this especially in afflicted brethren who press on through their pain. It is something that you will find in every follower of Christ Jesus to some degree. The letters to the seven churches make this clear as the Lord addresses each of them. In facing trials, they endure tribulation, they suffer persecution, and they hold fast. They never let go. As it says in Nehemiah 8, don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
And my question is, how does that work out practically? Well, there's joy in the midst of suffering and self-denial. We identify ourselves with Jesus who suffered and denied himself for the joy set before him. And with an otherworldly confidence, we serve and we face our trials and we mortify sin. And with the joy of the Lord, we persevere without compromise or giving up. Job wasn't overly patient, but he never let go. We take every thought captive and we defeat sin and we resist evil and we grow in grace. And we're told in 2 Timothy 2 that if we endure, we will also reign with him. That's passive grace. The Christian is enabled by their indwelling Holy Spirit to endure patiently. Have you not seen what a powerful witness such a passive grace is when it's displayed? Just think of the greatest exhibition of such a passive grace in the history of the world, the cross of Christ. He laid down his life an offering for sin. Wicked men nailed him to that tree, and he let him do it. And its witness has influenced every age of human history. And God promises to keep us by his power through faith unto salvation because of that. Safely guarded, wisely directed, kept and preserved from eternal ruin. Matthew Henry puts it this way, The heir to an earthly estate has no assurance that he shall live to enjoy it. But the heirs of heaven shall certainly be conducted safely to the possession of it. God keeps us through tribulation as royal heirs by patient endurance. Given all the circumstances in which you and I live, it's only his power that can keep us. The magnitude of the work set before us, the strength of the enemies who are set against us, the number of weaknesses that are found within us. There is no power but the infinite might of our Redeemer that could preserve us. I love what the Canons of Dort, that great Dutch document, says in this regard. I quote, The certainty of perseverance is so far from exciting in believers a spirit of pride or of rendering them carnally secure that on the contrary, it is the real source of humility, filial reverence, true piety, patience in every tribulation, fervent prayers, constancy in suffering, and in confessing the truth, and of solid rejoicing in God. And it's this kind of patient, enduring, conquering faith that God works in the believer. We're told and we believe, and tonight we confess. Christ is able to save us to the uttermost, since he always lives to make intercession for us. May that be encouraging to God's people this evening. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the threefold partnership of which John speaks here in this book that you gave him to write. We recognize that we are no match for the enticements of the world or the the malice of our enemy, the devil, or even our own weaknesses and sins.
But we understand from what you've revealed that your power is infinite and great, and it's by your power that you keep us through faith unto salvation. So we rejoice this evening knowing that our hope is certain, that Jesus awaits our entrance into heaven where he will welcome us and give us the kingdom that he has obtained for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.